Do we have any leftover questions or thoughts from anything from last week? Pardon me? We're now we're on 302. That's where we're starting. Which has looked like getting close to the end of the book. Relatively speaking. Compared to being at the front of the book. Which happens if you do 76 classes. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Number 302. At my first Christmas meditation in 1948, the Divine Mother came to Master and blessed the gathered devotees. To many of them, he repeated her wishes. To some, he said to give themselves unreservedly to God. He then spoke openly with the Divine Mother in such a way as to include all of us in the conversation. The conversation lasted a long time. Over and over, after a time, he repeated, Oh, you are so beautiful. At last he cried, Don't go. You say that the material desires of these people are driving you away? Oh, come back. Don't leave. All of us remained divinely uplifted after that for the rest of the day, savoring the joy she had left in our hearts. How real God became for us living with the Master. No longer, it seemed, was there a veil of Maya separating us from the infinite. Often it felt to me in his presence that God himself was there in our very midst. What an unusual story. You know, you you sort of don't even... I mean, what is he talking about when he talks about the Divine Mother seeing her and talking to her and that she really comes. You read a lot about the life of Ramakrishna where the image of Kali that he worshipped would just walk around and be more real to him as a presence than the people that we see. And so Master uh, Swami just talks about when, when you were in the presence of Master, his consciousness was so fluid that he was just as in touch with that infinite self. I mean, it really, it serves us who tend to be so conscious of this world to, to take an incident like this and think about what it would like, be like to be in the room or what it would like to, to be master when he's just completely engaged with a different level of consciousness than the one we're normally living on. And... You know, there's a, an inclination on our part to imagine, well, let me put it this way. When, uh, when the, uh, our friend Linda was dying and Swami went to visit her just a few weeks before she died, and she asked him to tell her about the astral world. And Swami said to her, you know, most people think of the astral world as being kind of vague and cloud-like. And I mean, that really is, whenever we think about it, we have that movie set where the fog machine has everybody covered up to the knees and people look like they're walking on top of the clouds. And, you know, just, that's just, that's the, the human, the shared human imagination of it. And Swami made the comment that it's this world that is vague and cloud-like and that the astral world is far more clear and vivid and exact and precise. 
I mean, it's just like our own minds almost rebel against that. He said, the reason this world is, is vague by comparison is because we perceive it indirectly through the senses. You know, we, we uh, read the light and we hear the sound, but we actually experience it as a signal that goes through the brain. And so what we're all perceiving is what the brain has filtered out from all that input, plus the very fact of um, having to do things through this physical body creates a certain heaviness to everything that happens. And just, uh, sometimes I'm struck by it, especially as I get a little older and I'm not quite as physically capable as I used to be. Just how much of the time you're having to lift and move and shift and put things here and put them there and how you can't move things with the power of thought and and everything is heavy. Your own body gets heavy and gets less responsive. But in the astral world, you perceive directly by the power of thought. Just the same way that when we have those moments of intuition, we just know something. There's no intervening level of evidence. We're just conscious of it. We're conscious of someone's need. We're conscious of their thought. We know a truth without having to be understand how we know it, we just know it. I was remembering, the crystals reminded me of this, the crystals at East-West. Um, Marcel Vogel, who was a, a scientist who lived in this area, who was, who was a very, had a very expanded and unusual consciousness. And at some point, I think he's been on the other side for at least 20 or 25 years. So he was from early on. Um, but at a certain point he went to work for IBM and they paid him a salary. He could do anything he wanted, but whatever he invented, they owned. That was the deal that he made with them. I'm not sure whether they profited more or what, but it was he was just paid to be a genius, sort of. And among other things he did was he worked a lot with crystals, and I think even some ways of making crystals are named after him. But he also was given to visions and psychic experiences and he, he and Swamiji became acquainted and he came to Ananda several times and his wife was, he, he, Marcel was extremely far out and his wife was exactly the opposite. She was just totally salt of the earth and Mar- Marcel could bend spoons with his mind and I remember we were all at the lunch table and his wife was there whose name I can't remember right now but she was there at the lunch table and we were all just fascinated by the fact that he could bend spoons and so we, you know, we got a spoon and we wanted him to bend it. His wife says, Marcel, when you bend the spoon, what will they do with it afterwards? You know? <laughs> Don't ruin another spoon. <laughs> it was just... <laughs> but I believe he bent it, as I recall. I don't have as clear a picture of him bending the spoon as his wife protesting because it was so charming. But somewhere in all of that, I believe that it, it was just some um, crystal carved in the shape of a skull was discovered somewhere. And I, the details of where it was discovered, I don't remember. But it was a big thing. And Marcel, I believe, had some relationship to it. He went to see it. But when he put his hands on it or tuned into it, he, he had a vision of, I think it was Atlantis or some, some high civilization. And, and he, he said that 
at a certain point, an old person would come in and a young person would come in and the old person would transfer a life of experience into the crystal and then the young person would receive that experience through the crystal. This was Marcel's visionary explanation of what these skulls were used for. And that was education. Instead of decades and decades of reading books and writing papers and trying to memorize things, knowledge was just moved. Wisdom was moved from youth, from age to youth. Whether or not that was a true vision, Marcel was certainly, uh, had earned his reputation. But even just the idea of it, why wouldn't it be possible that thoughts could simply be transferred like that? And it, it's, uh, Swamiji was always extremely open and interested in anything that went beyond the, the plodding uh, realities of this world. He was always interested in people with psychic ability and astrologers and just healers of all kinds. He was by no means naive. But he was so conscious of the potentials that he never closed his mind to any of these potentials. And I, from him, he was also setting an example how important it is for us not to become so hypnotized by the way we do things merely because it's the most natural way for us to do them and not to become hypnotized by the limitations of this world as if that was actually the limitations of reality or in any way a better way to run the world. So when you have Master who just sits down and suddenly he's conversing with Divine Mother whose beauty is overwhelming to him and then the vibrations of the people in the room make it impossible for her to stay. You remember the story in Autobiography of a Yogi where Sri Yukteswar came to see Lahiri and Lahiri said, did you see Babaji in the, in the foyer or the, the courtyard wherever he was? And uh, Sri Yukteswar hadn't seen him because uh, Babaji was hiding behind a sunbeam and Sri Yukteswar wasn't calm enough to look through the sunbeam. I mean, you're just, just like, you don't know what kind of a leela is being played out. But they're telling us that there is a potential around us all the time that we don't know. And it, it behooves us to, to at least live in that possibility. Um, not that those kinds of experiences will be given to most people, because they're not but they're given to us even less because we're so reluctant to allow ourselves to, to just move naturally in that sphere. It, does, it just doesn't serve us. There's also um, the factor, that which is Americans are just very practical and down to earth, and we're just not as inclined. Not all of you are blessed or cursed with that as your uh, cultural heritage. But Swamiji says in another place that uh, countries, uh, countries have a soul, is how he put it. And that soul has characteristics. And the people who are on that land are part of that cultural heritage will, be, will reflect the qualities of, the, of the, the vibratory collection, you might call it. But I think soul is the right word because there's certainly a guardian, a guardian angel. And so I... I uh, Swami always commented that New Zealanders are far more prone toward psychic experience. Uh, 
not necessarily spiritual, but at least psychic experience because of the heritage of the Maoris and whatever else is on that strange little isolated piece of land way down there, you know, at the bottom of the globe. It's really somewhere else. And they just have a more natural inclination. I, when, when I was there, I really felt it in the trees for some reason. I just was, I was really, the trees all seemed to be m- more communicating and more conscious. Maybe it was just I was more receptive. But everywhere I went, I could sort of feel the trees talking a little bit more than I usually did. And um, English people are very rational, but they also have that, the whole tradition of the fairies and the gnomes, and there's that, there's a, a very strong psychic tradition in England, but it's not necessarily so spiritual. Indians, of course, much more easily live in the world of intuition and uh, just the, the paranormal. In fact, Swamiji remarked once, the entire Indian culture is designed to produce intuition. He said the problem is that if it fails to produce intuition, he said, there's no fallback position of reason, he said. <laughs> and I think that was more true in the past before the countries were so amalgamated. But so if they, people weren't intuitive, they weren't rational either. They were just somewhere on their own realities. But of course, in India, just it's just so natural to have uh, spiritual experiences. And in, in Italy, when Swami first started being there, it was extremely interesting for Americans because the, the Italians are so devotional and they have such a, a long-standing tradition of saints that they just from the very beginning treated Swamiji in a way that Americans never did. We actually learned from Italians how to treat Swami because they just knew what to do. And they recognized him they recognized him, they trusted their intuition, and they openly responded. Americans are suspicious. And so what, would hap- what happens in America is that there's a lot of heart and a lot of intuition. And in the moment, people will have experiences. But as soon as they leave the room, they'll begin to wonder if they've been snookered in some way. And then they'll, because it's, you know, Americans never want to be thought not shrewd. So we, we second-guess our intuition a lot out of fear that maybe it's a charlatan and then we'll stand back and wait to see. It's very unfortunate. But in the moment, I find, Americans are very receptive. But then you won't see them again. It's almost like if they have an experience, then they'll go away and worry about it. <laughs> Whereas the Indians and the Italians will just go with that experience without any hesitation. They'll just trust it. They'll trust it more then they'll trust their thoughts about things. It's very interesting. And for us, you know, Master talked about world brotherhood colonies and world brotherhood. And we may think of it in terms of the people born here and the people born here and the people born here. But what he really meant was what Sri Yukteswar said to Master when you go to India. You know, forget you were born a Hindu, but don't become an American. He said, take the best of both cultures. And, and that's what we're really being asked to do. And we're even being given this incredible opportunity to do, especially right where we live here in California. Because you have every cultural choice in front of you. I, I was always so interested with Swamiji, the way he would travel, and then he would just come back so naturally with ideas from whatever country he'd been in. I, was, I never had a passport until I was 35, so I never went out of the country. 
and he would just bring back the you know the the German way of making coffee and the you know the Italian way of having your plates on the table or just you know he would just take from everywhere. I was saying to someone he always got his hearing aids and his glasses in Switzerland <laughs> because they were so precise. But he he didn't buy art in Switzerland. <laughs> but but you're choosing and then making of yourself a world citizen by adopting the best qualities that you see every culture has something to offer. I mean, it's just the right way for us to think of it as what I call the nation of self-realization, where we just pick up each of those pieces. Now, all of this started back with Divine Mother, which is to be less trapped in what we're used to and more consistently open to the possibility of an entire other way of being. And, and also, I mean, the part of the story that's also very touching is the materialistic desires of these people are driving you away. I, I mean, there had to be a, you know, a collective open-heartedness to pull that vibration in. If you think in the astral world of the vibrations being homogeneous and you can only blend with what you can blend with. I mean, that's why our minds don't float upward. It's because we're so busy vibrating on this level. You can't force that. You, you, at all. You just do what you can and wait for it to happen. But Master had to keep his mind down. Ramakrishna had to keep his mind down. And the rest of us have to try hard to break free for even a moment. But it's very powerful just to remember that there's no distance. That the only distance is inward. There's no actual separation. And once again, it's like these thoughts are just so instinctive to us that you don't even realize you're holding them until you back up for a moment. And that's why, as devotees, we begin to um, adopt certain rituals and adopt certain attitudes. When we went to visit the uh, St. Joseph of Cupertino, I think, the cell where he lived in under the Basilica of Assisi, and they show you the little baby doll that he that he had there as the baby Jesus and it, it's very it's a very hindu custom to have a murti and have you have you considered the murti to be the a living being that you have to take care of like a living being you have to you can't just leave it alone you have to feed it and wash it and you know we think of it just being a statue but once it's become uh, sanctified then it has to be a living being and you can imagine this monk who was um, imprisoned there basically because his consciousness was so expanded he was, he was uh, inconvenient for the church so they imprisoned him in this room but then just imagine him there all by himself with the baby Jesus and, and you know, nothing would inhibit him from living that out the first time we did Christmas here, not with a, a, a living, for a year, for, at first we did Christmas with the, the family, the mother and father and baby of the most recently born child in our community. Um, but that was dicey, because it depended a great deal on the mood of the baby, how that experience went. And I think we had two in a row, one where the baby screamed almost without ceasing, 
and the other where the, the baby just nursed and was under the blanket and might as well not have been there. And those two persuaded us that we needed another system. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, then every so often we'd have a baby who would just sit on its mother's lap like that the whole time. And those were the terrific ones. But the, the first time we did uh, Christmas with a, a doll, um, a midwife gave me a, uh, a newborn, a, a doll of a newborn child and, you know, just a really ugly, wrinkled doll. It's still up there. People don't like him very much. But he was, he was the baby Jesus, and I wrapped him all up. And, and I was just, and I just became engaged with him as the baby Jesus. And we, we talked. And on Christmas morning, I just carried him in like this. And someone said afterwards, did Usha have a baby? Because <laughs> they just saw me coming, and he had become to me a living child, and he was exactly the size of a newborn, so I was just carrying him around because he had become alive to me with such commitment that it was like, did I miss? Did I miss a chapter here? How did this happen? It wasn't unthinkable. I was young enough at the time. But still, it's wonderful. And that's how we really have to be because what we're doing, what we have to realize, there's a difference between affirmation and attunement. And it's a very subtle difference. It's a very important difference. You know, we, can, we affirm things that we haven't yet realized. And that's a very positive thing to do because the mind's going to go somewhere anyway, so you might as well orient it toward the upbeat. You know, just a, either conscious with conscious affirmations. At different times in my life, I have, I've had really a very strong aff- affirmative approach practice of a formal affirmation because of the inclination of my mind to cling to something I didn't want it to cling to, I needed, a, a, I needed an, an opposite. I couldn't just kind of go around and hope things would be positive because the mind was very strongly magnetized to circular thoughts that were not helpful, so I had to just give it a, a break. The, the affirmation I used then is, uh, let's see if I can actually remember it. I know God's power is limitless, and as I am made in his image, I too have the strength to overcome all obstacles. And it was, you know, it was about self-doubt and so on. But whenever another thought would come, I would say that over and over again. I'm just because I've started it, I'm going to put in... It's very important when you have an affirmation that you actually do an affirmation that you can actually believe. Because if you do an affirmation that's too much bigger than your present reality... Exactly as you say it, your subconscious, it will reinforce the idea that you can't. You know, the example I often give is a woman who came to me who had worked in in a lab as a research scientist for many years and had developed an allergy to some of the products she had to use, had been off of work and was going back to work. And the affirmation she was trying to use was, I am perfectly well and perfectly healthy, you know, like this. But every time she said it, she was frightened because every time she said, I am perfectly well, what actually came into her mind was the thought of how ill she'd been. So it was, it was weakening her rather than strengthening her. So I suggested as an affirmation, I am God's child. He is always with me. Whatever he sends me, he will help me face and overcome. And I mean, maybe it wasn't those exact words, but it was like, you start with something you can actually believe, and so every time she said that, she felt stronger, whereas the other one was making her feel weaker. 
with that affirmation I used, I know God's power is limitless. I don't have really an argument with that. You know, and as I am made in his image, I, that part is okay. Then it gets a little dicey. I too have the power to overcome. Maybe yes, maybe no. But the first, if the first two things are true, then the third one has to be true. And so that was like I could push myself that far. If, if, if I'd started, you know, I am strong, I am brave, I am fearless, nothing will ever stop me, my subconscious would have said, ha, who are you kidding? And it would have been that kind of fight. So in all of our... So what I was saying, let me just go back to where I was. I was talking about being affirmative and attunement. Affirmative is to direct us to, because thoughts are universal, not individual, and we're going to be attuned to something. We might as well tune to a station we want to listen to, and you can you can help create that station and have it be something you really want to listen to. That's what affirmations are, and 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 it's understood that it's not quite what you are, but you're you're moving yourself in the right direction, and that's. And then there becomes a sort of subtle line between attunement and affirmation because when you're really trying to attune yourself, and they're related, so I can't draw a perfect line here, but what I'm trying to say is when St. Joseph of Cupertino was holding a doll in his hand, the doll is an inanimate object, but the living, but Jesus as a baby loved by someone who loves him is real. And so by working, opening his heart through this image, what he's actually doing, the image becomes a doorway to a higher level of reality in the same way that the affirmation does, but more dynamically. So it isn't like you're just using your imagination at all. It's that you're trying, we're trying to align our vibration so that our vibration will merge. Just like Divine Mother said, there's too much material thinking in this room and that vibration is not consistent with my presence, so it's going away. But if we could align ourselves, and the most powerful way to align ourselves is by love. If we align ourselves, then we merge into something that is actually there. And we're not just affirming it, we're not just changing ourselves, we're actually, uh, well, I guess I said the word, we've changed our vibration. And, and so all of these practices which do not come naturally to Americans are, are profoundly important to cultivate. You know, just great reverence and respect and um, commitment to the possible, to Master's presence with us, to Swami's presence with it, to the reality of Divine Mother at all times, to the fact that anyone who says the name of Babaji with devotion will attract to himself an instant blessing. I mean, that's really something to contemplate, isn't it? You know, just the, I mean, just the idea that Babaji is there and he knows. All, all very interesting subjects to meditate on. Yes. The first time I read the AY, uh, 1975, I put the book down and I read that and prayed to Babaji, and I had a much better meditation almost within a day or two. Isn't that interesting? So it does work. (laughs) Someone else told me sort of the same thing. Somebody else told me when they read about breathlessness, they just said, I'm going to try that, and actually were able to 
you know, go breathless for a period of time. The details of that story are a little obscure in my mind, but it was something pretty close to that. I'm just going to try this. Because all of us are not new to this path. People who are discovering this for the first time just keep the book on the shelf or read it once or you know it's you don't you don't get as far as everybody in this room has come on your first pass through it takes a few more times before it as swami says in the end of the path yeah, over time we gradually develop the magnetism to attract and to hold the realization because first you can attract it but sometimes you attract it and then it's gone as soon as you have it and we already have that experience, all of us, where you, you attract something, but it doesn't stay with you. You think it's going to, but it kind of fades a little back into the background. It doesn't go away, it just fades. It, it gets buried by sunbeams. <laughs> and other things a little denser <laughs> than sunbeams. All right, any other comments or thoughts? Uh-huh. Uh, this is going back to Marcel Vogel. Because um, I've been led to Ananda very gradually by this thing and that thing and that thing, and I didn't know about uh, Master, but I remember going to see Marcel Vogel and he talked, mm-hmm. and it was very interesting. And then I actually uh, he tried to use a crystal on me, which it helped a little bit, but then it didn't last. But I figure that he was a uh, he was one of the instruments that mm. got me here. Which is kind of fun for me. Yeah, it's every every one of us has a story of piece by piece, which is why everything we do is important, because we never know. You really never know what's the starting point is. Hmm. All right, so that was Divine Mother. Let's see where was I? Yes, right here. Okay, number three o three. Oh, these are very, this is a very long section, right? Okay. So I'll probably stop as I go through it. Did the master have any special traits or idiosyncrasies, such as one that was recorded by Samuel Johnson's biographer, Boswell, which was a habit of running the tip of his cane along the iron railings on a street? <laughs> this was just a, an example of a, a habit a person might have. Little things, in other words. In the Master's case, Swami writes, I can recall nothing of the sort. I don't say he had no mannerisms. I am simply not aware that he had. It's interesting. Mannerisms is kind of the word for it. You know, just characteristic ways of putting the tips of his fingers together or chewing on his lower lip or twirling a mustache or just sort of any of the things that a person might do. And he said, I, I, don't, I can't recall that Master had any mannerisms. It's, just, it's an interesting statement in itself. I remember the reaction of Roy Ben, a radio announcer from Australia who visited Mount Washington during the early 50s. I had said something to him about having seen Master once drumming his fingers on the arm of the chair, which is what, uh, the kind of thing a person would do if they were nervous like that. I mean, that, that would be the kind of thing you would call a mannerism. In any case, um, Roy responded, I wouldn't have thought the master could have had a nervous habit like that. So Swami has just told Roy this. And then Swami says, reflecting on the matter afterwards, 
I realized that the master hadn't been showing nervousness at all. He had simply been playing rhythmically with his fingers to the accompaniment of a piece of music he was hearing in his head. <laughs> Something entirely different. Master liked to play the, uh, the tablas, the, trum- the, the drum played with the fingers, and once remarked that he'd like it if more Indian music were played during our church services. So you can see Master there, and he's hearing a song. And he's hearing the song, he's just playing the rhythm out. Swami, because he had such a strong, um, clear memory where Master was concerned, it, Swami must have been able to remember that there was a specific rhythm being played, rather than just a, something that would just be nervousness. You know? <laughs> but, just, but he was actually playing music. And this is also, Master wanted more Indian music played at their church service, but Sister Mira talked him out of it, insisting that in America it wouldn't be understood. I mean, that, it's just, that's an interesting piece, but I have to say, on many occasions, Swami allowed other people to change his mind. And I don't really believe that other people convinced him, but they persuaded him to do things differently. I'm surprised by the number of times that Swami will just more or less say on something you might even think rather important, well, that's how so-and-so wanted to do it. I remember he said once to me that I objected strongly to him using the name Donald Walters, just for reasons that are, I have no idea. I just objected because I did. I mean, it was just about that intelligent. And he said to me many years later, or just in conversation, I would have started using the name earlier, but Asha objected so strongly. And then he said, I think he used the word Asha thwarted me. That was the word he used, thwarted. And, you know, by that time I'd grown up a little. And I came back to him and I said, that wasn't the other, only time I thwarted you, was it? He said, no. <laughs> I said, I think I owe you a global apology. He said, yes. <laughs> so it was just that much. But he, he was extremely respectful of people's feelings, just on a level that you do not associate with a spiritual teacher. You know, we have this thought in our mind that a spiritual teacher crushes our ego all the time, but actually a true teacher doesn't because it, would, it, would, it wouldn't help us. You know, it, we, don't need to be, we don't need to be thwarted. We need to be encouraged. And so Swamiji was always doing things that made us feel more confident rather than less. And I don't mean he never contradicted or never, you know, just let anything happen, because he didn't, and he was strong and he was definite. But he was also just extraordinarily sensitive to what we needed. And later on in this, Swami talks about the organization only exists to help the individual. And you, you, don't, you don't do things in the name of the organization if it's not in the benefit of the individuals because there's no reality to it except helping individual people grow spiritually. So here's this little thing. Master wanted more Indian music and Mira talked him out of it. Now, of course, Master didn't know America. She was an American woman. She did. Was she correct? The mere fact that Master allowed himself to be talked out of it doesn't mean at all that he agreed with her. It just meant that he wasn't going to 
mm, embarrass her, diminish her by just disregarding what she said. So, I mean, Swami's not here anymore, but words like that are a, a, a big warning <laughs> to, to when we just come back with what we know, we might want to stop for just a minute and actually think if there's something here trying to happen that I don't already know. I mean, even, you know, with each other, we, we don't have just one person now dictating, but when people make suggestions, and I'm a, I, I'm a very quick responder, a much too quick responder, and I'm tr- I've been trying very hard in my life not to respond so fast, because there's a tendency when people put out ideas, you just answer. But maybe it's better to just pause for a minute and actually try to think. Finally, toward the end, well, you know, later in my life with Swamiji, I developed the understanding that instead of responding to what he said, I should try to understand what he was trying to accomplish. Because sometimes what he was trying to... Sometimes I actually had a good idea about how to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish... And he was the first to admit other people could have better ideas about how to accomplish it. But if one only thought about what he said, whether I like it or not, often one's energy was thwarting, which was the word he used, rather than supportive. Whereas if you try to think about what's trying to be accomplished, you may actually be able to improve. And when I finally got there, and he would just throw out an idea, and I would tune into what he was trying to accomplish, then we could have a very creative discussion. I would suggest this, he would suggest that, and everything would go forward. When I said, no, that won't work, uh, it was not to my credit, and it didn't help. And we can all work with each other with just that thought. Because a lot of times also, people will just have a feeling about something, and it may not even be clear to them. They're just trying to find it. And they'll put some words on it, but if, if, if the energy is cut too fast, then nobody ever gets to figure anything out. So it's very important in our working with each other. And also, not everybody's rhythm is quick. And if the people whose rhythm is quick stop the energy before those who are more thoughtful or more deliberate in their thinking, then everything gets distorted for that reason too. Anyway, so Sister Mira talked him out of it. Dr. Lewis once told me, nothing the Master ever did was out of habit. His every action was a conscious and deliberate exercise of free will. Yeah. This was to me an astonishing statement. Not even when tying his shoelaces, I inquired. Nothing, Dr. Lewis asserted. I just think about that. But what he's also saying is that Master never went to sleep. He was never mentally asleep. I mean, how many of us will find just little gaps in our our day when we just don't quite remember where we were or what we were doing? And, And that's really what he's talking about. Because if every time, well, I mean, most people have Velcro on their shoes now, but let's imagine we have shoelaces. You know, if every time you had to look at it like a baby and wonder how the bow was tied. Or, I mean, Master could play the tabla, Master could play the instruments. So some part of him had mastered the technique. He didn't have to... It wasn't that he didn't learn anything. But habit is unconscious. And that's what Dr. Lewis is trying to say, is that Master never lost awareness 
of what he was doing. Everything that he was doing, he was always fully aware of it while he did it. He just didn't go into subconsciousness and do things automatically. You know, this is an extreme example, which doesn't at all apply to master, but I've, I've heard people talk about who, for example, an alcoholic who's trying to stop drinking. I was reading a story about such a person and how he just walked into his house, went to the liquor cabinet, pulled out the bottle and the glass and opened it and poured a drink before he even realized he was doing it. And he had resolved to stop drinking, but he, it was just so habitual with him. And that's the kind of thing where we just don't know what we're doing. I'll, um, sometimes because I ride my bike to the YMCA and also to the church, and at one intersection I either turn right or go straight, on more than one occasion I've headed toward the wrong place because I'm just there and I just do it. And I mean that, I've just gone to sleep. Where am I when that's happening? Now sometimes you can be somewhere else, I mean really somewhere else. When I crashed on my bicycle, I was thinking about the election. It was the day after the election, the national election two years ago, or two and a half, and I just forgot I was riding my bike and I, I drove right into another bicyclist. Now, I could have driven into a garbage truck, really. It was just the grace of God that I just hit the back wheel of another cyclist and knocked myself over. But I forgot I was riding my bike. Now, I mean, that's really serious. Have you ever been in your car and got interested in the radio or reached down? And then just for a split second, you forget that you're driving? Yeah. See, this is, this is what Swami is saying Master never did. He never lost track of where he was. He always knew where he was and was always completely in that moment. He didn't allow subconsciousness to take over. It's a very, very powerful practice because why do we sink into subconsciousness? We lower our energy. That was, for me, why I loved being in Swami's company because his, his, his natural vibration was so high and his awareness was so constant, <clears throat> you, you could never go to sleep. And I loved that. I didn't like going to sleep. <clears throat> going to sleep mentally. <clears throat> I annoyed the people in my life because I was just, you know, there was, I was like, it was, the, the switch was always on. There was nothing that I wouldn't completely engage in pretty much without exception. And Swamiji was one of the few people in my world who was way ahead of me. And of course I could be annoying that, that to him too, but he, he was always fully in whatever was happening. And I mean, if he wanted to be quiet or concentrate on something, I don't mean that he talked all the time. In fact, he never multitasked, ever. If he was doing one thing, he absolutely refused to do anything else. And I would annoy him with that. I would try to interrupt him or try to get him to talk to me simultaneously about this while he was doing that. And he just wouldn't. I mean, you know, just wouldn't until I noticed. And then I would stop. But that was not because he wasn't aware. But it was, he was so fully fixed here, he wouldn't be fixed here. So, I mean, these are, these are, these are ways we can take something as extreme as what Swami is saying about Master, and figure out, how does that relate to me? You know, and we get bored when we lower our energy. If we're fully awake, it's always interesting because 
it is, whatever it is. Sometimes you just enjoy things that you wouldn't enjoy because you're not, we're not giving any energy to it. When we give energy to things, then energy flows. And when we don't give energy, well, it don't. <laughs> okay? Indeed, as I, is there any comment on that before I go on? Yes, Viva. About <clears throat> multitasking, I was uh, watching one of the videos uh, by Swami at my work desk, and mm-hmm. he mentioned, and, and I was working, and then he says about that how one should never do multitasking. <laughs> and then I look at this other screen, and then I pause that video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Then I got back to work. I said, well, it does make sense. If, if I'm still listening to him, this means I don't care what he's saying. So. That's also true. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I would rather listen to him or <laughs> And that video was there at my browser for many days to come, but I never did that. You me. never went back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> listening to a talk and working at the same time, I never did that again. I to- now, I have to balance that by saying, I certainly will listen to Swami while I'm doing something that doesn't require mental effort. Yeah. To do two things that require mental effort. I mean, I'll sew or clean the house or do the dishes or... Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, He also would not object. He would not object to that, exactly. But when you're dividing your mind and not really concentrating on either side of it, when concentration is required. Yes, good point. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Indeed, as I look back, I can recall no instance to indicate that Dr. Lewis might have been mistaken. Always the master seemed to be living completely in the moment. That was what I was saying. He's completely where he is. A moment, however, that existed in eternity. So he he was completely conscious, but simultaneously on many levels of himself, so that we're not just mundane with our consciousness. That's why I I remember meeting this... uh, this man with a great deal of energy and a great deal of intelligence. And he did everything with full energy, but he, he became... He put so much more energy into situations than the situations require. And I'm sure that you all have met people like that. Well, you know, I went to three different stores and I saw that the cans here were two cents more than the cans over here. And so I looked at them and they really had the same ingredients. So I went over to the third store and I could see that this was really similar, but this one seemed to have more salt than this one here. So I went back and I looked at this one, you know. <laughs> and Yeah, you, you know it. And so it's like, and my thought always is this man needs a hobby. <laughs> or a job. <laughs> so the fact that master, to be fully conscious can also be a detriment We have to be conscious on a higher level, and that's why Swami said that Master was always in the moment, but his moment existed in eternity. Okay? (laughs) Sometimes a task really doesn't require the full... (laughs) the full blast that we have. (laughs) Okay. How was he in other ways as a person? What was his appearance? How did he comport himself? You know, these are obvious things that a person would ask. He seemed completely ageless. It's a nice beginning. He seemed completely ageless. Of course, that wasn't merely a physical reality. That was because he inhabited his body, but he never identified with it. I'm actually going to stop there for just a moment. Um, 
in different times, uh, when I lived at Ananda Village, our immediate neighbors were just on a very different wavelength than we were. Almost all of them were marijuana farmers and at a time when it was completely illegal. And they, they, they just took drugs, they drank, they identified with the earth. They, 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 often they were uh, educated people who were, who were trying deliberately to be natural. And you know, so it was just this enormous involvement in the physical world. And at Ananda, we're always thinking about the energy. And the form the energy takes is really quite secondary to the energy. I've always found it extremely interesting when there's a choir standing up. Our choir is a little bit smaller, but you can see it even with our choir. But when, like at Ananda Village, when there will be a choir of 50 or 60 people. And really, there can be a 60-year age difference on the stage in front of you. Somebody in their 80s and then some child of 12 will be up there. And you can tell because people's faces begin to reflect how long they've lived in the body. But it's not that easy to tell. And especially when people start singing, it's fascinating to see that you really have, even with white hair and things that you would think would be just revealing, it's really hard to see it. Because people, especially then, are identifying with one vibration and it actually just moves them right out of their bodies. So the fact that Master appeared ageless was because even if he could have told you when his body was born and how many years he'd been living in it, still, it was never him. He, he existed as a force of energy coming through it, and he never felt it to be him. So when I had to, on several different cycles of projects, work a lot with the people who lived around us, I had the impression that all of them were much older than I was. You know, I would think of them as being my father's age or sometimes even my grandfather's age. And, you know, they were the same age as me, many of them. Many of them were even younger than I. But I always felt like a child and they just seemed ancient. And I remember talking to Swami about it and this is when we we sort of came up. I said they just identify and even not just their own bodies, but they identified with the physical world. And at that particular time, that was some of their conflict with Ananda, is that we didn't. We just didn't identify with the physical world. We lived on our land, we used it, we made houses, but we, we just didn't define ourselves by, it, by the world around us. And a lot of these people were living on the land and living off, of, you know, living off the land and harvesting their own lumber, which was all just great. But it was their reality. So you saw this earthbound quality to them. So here we have Master who seemed ageless because he was. I remember this little girl when Swamiji came to visit our school once and he was already old enough to look grandfatherly. Um, and, but there was this little girl, she was about eight. And, but Swamiji when he was with children was so the same as he was when he was adults. He was just so with them. And he had so little of himself to protect. He had none of himself to protect. He was just with you. So the children were, because he was clearly old, but he wasn't. It was very, and they were open, open-minded enough to just be a little bewildered. And this little girl who was very forceful and cheeky, she just finally kept walking closer and closer. And he was sitting actually about where you're sitting. And she finally walked up to him real close and just said, how old are you anyway? <laughs> 
And he looked at her and he said, I'll put it like this. When I was a little boy, you were an old woman. And uh, she knew enough from our school. She just and they went, ah, oh, like that. <laughs> and just walked away and was completely satisfied. <laughs> you know, just, you're right. He was just telling her, you know, we're all in a cycle. And that's why you can't tell. We're all just moving like this. It was a very good answer. Okay, why don't we, actually, why don't we just take a little break right now? Okay. When the Master said that, why can't, could we do more Indian music, right? Okay. Master would have liked to have done have more, more yeah. Indian music in the church, right? Well, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but many years ago, didn't Swami say something about we're playing too much Indian music? Well, we weren't... You're, you're, you're bringing in very unrelated things, so let's let me just try to simplify it now okay. that you brought it up. Master wanted to play more classical Indian music because he was trained in it and he loved it. There were he used to listen to Indian records, records of Indian musicians, and and it was it was a beautiful art form that he was very familiar with, and it was very devotional, and he thought it could inspire people in this country, but especially in 1925, 1930, it just wasn't commonly heard. And even for people who have a lot of affinity for India, it's a different form of music. And so Mira, Sister Mira, just thought that Americans just wouldn't, wouldn't hear it the way Master was hearing it. And so he suggests, she suggested she not do it, they not do it, which, because Master was trying to make a bridge to America and trying not to make this seem like too foreign a teaching. I mean, who knows what all the thinking was. He might have been able to inspire them to like it. What you're referring to is that there was a period of time where the style of chanting at Ananda was becoming much more oriented toward Indian bhajans. And Swami pointed out to us that Master was fully familiar with you know all of the Indian chants, but he didn't. He didn't sing them, and he could have brought that that kind of chanting because he did bring chanting. But he wrote songs in English, or he translated traditional songs, and uh, he just he he did almost none of it, almost none of it that wasn't in English, and almost none of it in the in the sort of style where you're just many names of God and Jaya Shiva, Jaya Shiva, you know, that sort of thing. Master could have, but he didn't. And so Swamiji pointed out to us that we were moving away from something very fundamental that Master was doing. And we were doing it because we liked it. Because we had Indian samskars and it uh, was familiar to us and we liked it. And he thought we needed to pay more attention to the way Master did things and not just follow our own inclinations. Because there's this great, what, you know, what do I feel? Well, I may feel a whole lot of things and only a few of them are really going to help me spiritually. It's not that I don't feel them. It's not even that I don't even feel, I don't feel them super powerfully. But we are subconscious as well as superconscious. And if we often, what, we, what feels so good to us is because it's so familiar, and we've done it so many times, that it feels perfectly natural. But that doesn't mean it's taking us anywhere. It just means that we're enjoying ourselves. So it, it gets a little complicated. Even just, you know, you can't say it just quite so simply, which is why you have a master, 
and why you listen to what he said and why you meditate on what he said or she and you try to understand what they're trying to accomplish instead of just saying, but I like Indian chanting and I feel really inspired, which is what we all did, you know, me included. I argued that one for a really long time. That might have been the time he told me to be quiet. I'm not sure. I mean, but sometimes on different occasions, I try to present to Swami every point of view that I can, every, this is my debate history. You know, I try to, you know, just present everything, every reason I can think of. And if he's not, and he'll listen and discuss it back. But if he, if he remains convinced, and I mean, I've come back to this community on occasion and said, I talked to him, I asked him, I gave him every reason I could think of, and he's, un, he's not budging. So now we have to move. You know, we have to go with it and see where it's going. See, part of it is, at this stage in Master's work, this early in Master's work, absolutely everything we do defines what Master's mission is. And so we have to be very responsible to that. You know, what I personally may want to do in the privacy of my own meditation room, if it's done in this church as a presentation of Ananda, it becomes Master's work. And it's very easy for things to just veer off into personal preference. And so there has to be a certain sense of responsibility here. And our feelings matter, and our intuition matters, but we also have to pay attention to orthodoxy is the only way I can say. And that was happened to be one of those instances. Just the instance you brought up. Now, if you're in India, where everybody's singing Indian music and knows it, but the fact of the matter is, when he went back to India, he didn't do it either. You know, you hear about the, the he chanted all night. What was the chant? Door of my heart? Was it in Calcutta? Yeah, but I mean, he... he he, he created something new. This is not a continuation of the old. And on the Indian side, what, what happens is that, that anything, I mean, I know from my little experience of teaching over there, which is not, not enormous, anything that resembles what they already have, they grab and continue to do what they already have. And, and my experience, my little bit of experience teaching there was that because people knew so much about the tradition from which Master Drew is teaching, they actually understood less of what I was saying because they didn't understand how to understand that this is not what they think it is. You know, this is a new dispensation. This is not the same teaching. At first, my first few, my first few rounds of teaching over there, I was way too respectful of everybody else's opinion because I just felt you know, I'm bringing this back to to the land from which it came. These people must know more than I do. But gradually, slowly, I realized they didn't know more about Master's teachings than I did. They knew more about Indian tradition. But as I listened carefully, I realized that what they were saying bore no relationship to what Master taught, except superficially, because it was just a new dispensation. Then I began to speak with more confidence. The first time I went to India, which was in 1986, on pilgrimage, not to present, that was when I realized that this that came to me that, because I always just assumed that we were sort of Hindu, especially in the first 10 years at Ananda, by 1986 we were past that. 
because we kind of, Swami let us play out a little fantasy of Indian ashram sort of thing. We wore Indian clothes, we had Indian names, we did a lot of Indian chanting. Swami himself was closer to his years in India too. And he, in a sense, kind of went with us on it. And, and so I just thought that we were Indian. And then I went to India and I realized that we were about as Hindu as we were Catholic. <laughs> Which was that you could see in both seeds of where the thing was coming from, but we were no more Hindu than we were Catholic. It was really just about the same. And that was... And actually, Swamiji's pushing the Indian back a little bit. He himself made a decision um, earlier than that. But he himself was clinging, he felt, too much because he'd lived in India for four years. He felt, you know, he's, he's lived all over the world and spoke many different languages. But India to him was his home country. He, was, he felt more at home in the spirit of that country than anywhere else. And he was forcibly, forcibly removed from it when SRF expelled him. So he never relinquished it. It was just taken away from him. So for many years he held on to it. And, and he could go so easily into the Indian bhav. But he said when he did that, he just couldn't relate to America. And he, he felt that Master had sent him, you know, had, had returned him to America, and for 10 years he couldn't get a visa to go back to India and didn't even allow him to go back to India for a reason. And he had to learn to relate to what was going on. So he... He pushed it aside. He stopped singing Indian chants himself because he didn't feel it helped him with what Master had asked him to do. Now, all of this relates to something I really feel needs to be said. How we feel is not always relevant. And I've, I've begun to see a little bit of this thought coming up. Well, I'm just going to see how I feel, whether it feels right to me. Now, of course we should see if it feels right to me. But it it may not be the deciding factor. You know, we have to be... uh, We need to have people in our lives that we trust enough that we can present our own feelings and listen to what they say. Um, There's there's nobody among us who's omniscient or infallible. That's just not a fact. But neither are we. And and the, the idea that I know myself better than anyone else is a recipe for disaster. And the idea that God can only give me instruction through me is also a recipe for disaster because heavens, and we don't know anything about ourselves, we're so caught up in our own realities. It's just common sense. We can't. I mean, that's why we have a community. And, you know, now when people are trying to decide where I should work, what I should do, where I should live... And there's, you know, there's a lot of how do I feel. And we need to balance that. I'm not going to say we need to take it away, but we certainly need to balance that with a healthy dose of how can I serve and, and what is needed. You know, Swami was once asked, how can you tell what your dharma is? He said, if a job needs to be done and you're next in line. I mean, that's about how much energy he gave to it. Because... It's, it's better if we do things that we have a natural affinity for. It's better if we're not, if, if we're having fun and that that fun isn't too hard to come by. 
martyrdom won't really take us anywhere, but neither will following what we are already inclined to do. You know, someone, I was talking to someone, I said, do you, I've lived in Palo Alto since 1986. What is that, 30, 32 years now? Really, do you think I've loved every minute of it? <laughs> I mean, of course not. And do you think it's always felt right? No, actually. Of course it hasn't. But that doesn't mean that those feelings were a sign that I should do something else. That had to be balanced against how can I serve. And, you know, the natural talents, sometimes, sometimes our natural talents are to be avoided, meaning that they might be dangerous for us. But most of the time, God gives us an ability so we can use it. And in the most charming way, he gives you an ability. When I was 10 years old, my mother sent me out to learn to sew. It's the only talent I brought from my childhood. I learned nothing in my childhood except to sew. And I've been sewing like crazy ever since then, you know? I sewed Swami's clothes. I sew all these costumes. You know, it's like he gave me the ability to do it. And it's a trivial talent, but I've used it. And every inclination that I've had, God has asked it from me. But not usually because I volunteered or because I decided I should do it, but because it needed to be done and I had the capacity to do it. And I was next in line. I mean, this all comes down to intuitive guidance, which is, and I've said in this room before, intuitive guidance is hard to teach. Because if everybody agrees with you, you may be right, and if everybody disagrees with you, you may be right. You just, like, there's no rules. And when one is looking at oneself, it's especially difficult. Because we, we're just, by nature, we're blind where we need to grow. Everybody, I remember a friend of mine who was so tightly wound absolutely decided that what she needed was more discipline. I said, oh God, please, I can't, I couldn't bear it. If you were any more disciplined, I, think you, I don't think I could ever even be around you. It's like the last thing you need is to wind yourself up even tighter. But we all just keep doing whatever we're doing. And it feels so good because it's the known way to, to be. And and people will come and I'm just so disconcerted and I'm so confused, I don't know what to do. And it's like, yeah, because you're changing and you're totally, you're totally losing control. (laughs) How about that? And it feels awful, doesn't it? (laughs) Okay, where, where did I start this? I can't remember where I started this. Oh, you were talking about Indian music. Yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, just a good idea to remember to pray. To pray? Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Pray is part it's of it. It's really important. I... Yeah, we're sincere. All right. Then you asked me because you brought up something I had to explain. So now we're back to where we were. With. All right. Master seemed completely ageless. That's what I just read. I had to find my place here. Physically, he was not tall, about five feet six, as I've stated before. He was well-built, slightly stocky, very firm-looking. So even though he, he, had, he carried weight, he, carried it, it, he didn't look uh, like he let himself go. He, 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 every part of him was energized. 
He left his hair long because his guru had said he liked it. He liked it so. His guru wasn't his guru liked it, but his guru wanted him to wear it that way. From a wish to meet other aspects of American taste, however, he was clean-shaven. That's the story that he tells when he was coming over on the boat, where he said, you can have a beard or long hair, but not both. You know, now, now beards are more common, but when Swami Kriyananda was a monk in SRF and Master had him grow a beard, he said he was the only man on the street with a beard. That was why he was invited to play Jesus Christ in a tableau for the Masonics, <laughs> because he was the only man in town with a beard. <laughs> His two most notable features were his eyes and his smile. Isn't that sweet? Both of which were extraordinarily expressive. When I read that word expressive, I started thinking about that. And, you know, most people are guarded in their responses. You know, we, we just meet people. We don't feel unity with them. We're not, you know, and so we guard our eyes and we guard our smiles and the fact that Master was so expressive, it was such a nice word. He just, he just really put himself, he, he never held his energy back. His energy, his energy was always flowing out of him. You, you know, there's so many, every, every little tiny aspect of how a highly evolved soul behaves tells you so much about their consciousness and is such an interesting consciousness to ours. So why are we guarded? Well, because we're afraid. I mean, the, word, the simple word is fear. We don't know what kind of a response we're going to get. We don't want to merge our energies with certain kinds of people. You don't know who the person is. You don't know if you'll be misunderstood, taken advantage of. I mean, you can do a very long line, all of which causes us, you know, I mean, some people causes us to go all the way like this. But at the very least, you know, you kind of, Put a veil over your eyes. And if you smile, you, you may not, you know, really be very expressive with it. But, but how would it feel to be afraid of nothing and to perceive everybody as your own and be only there to serve and to give, masters, give God's blessing to everyone so that there's absolutely nothing that you want to hold yourself back from? And you also know that there's nothing that can disturb your own vibration because your own vibration with God is so powerful that you have that to give rather than thinking always about what might come into me, what might happen to me. I spent a great deal of my life very conscious of how sensitive I was. And I, I am, in a certain sense, it's partly that I'm, so intent, I tend to be aware of a lot that's going on around me. But I was also very sensitive. And I, see, these are the things like where you, act, you kind of get down a track because it feels natural to you and you begin to think of this as a good thing. The fact that I was so sensitive, I created as this, this virtue of mine that I'm very sensitive. You know, I'm very sensitive. You know, I'm, I'm really not sure that I could go there because, you know, I'm very sensitive. And it just became this persona. And not being a particularly physically large or strong person, it was just, I just played the whole thing out. I mean, for a long, long time. And many of you know, but I'll repeat the story here. There was the man, Raghu, who was part of our community for a long time, over six feet tall, very robust, 
sings with a strong bass voice. We did a class together on affirmations. And in our way, both of us being a little casual, we just kind of were winging it. So we're in this class and we're sitting quite next to each other on two chairs. And Raghu's going to lead this affirmation. I don't know which one it was, but the words were, I am big, I am strong, I am powerful, I am forceful. You know, the whole universe goes through me. And God, I just went, I am tiny, I am frail. (laughs) I am sensitive. Like this. This huge form, this mountain of a man is next to me with this gigantic power. I mean, that would be what he would naturally pick up. I didn't even know that one was in the book. You know, I had never thought of saying that. And I'm just going, we're teaching the class, you know, so I'm having to do all this right here. And then it crosses my mind. Asha, why, this is not a virtue to think of yourself as tiny and sensitive and vulnerable. Where did you ever get the idea that that was a good idea? And I sat up with, you know, (laughs) I tried, and I started going, I am strong, I am powerful. But it was, whoa, did a light bulb go off in my mind about, you know, how we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, and how much I closed myself off from the world because I'm so sensitive. And what never made me think that was a good idea? You see how easily we get confused? I mean, this relates a little bit to you have to just be a little careful about our own intuition because we hit a groove and the only thing to recommend it is that it's familiar. And so we get to stay exactly as we are and we get to make lots of decisions based on what we already know. Wait, there's something a little wrong with this picture. Isn't there? You know, but that was so, it was huge. That was a number of years ago, and I'm still sensitive. (laughs) But I try not to be now, except insofar as it makes me capable of being more helpful to people. But tremendous amount of that did not make me helpful. It made me exactly the opposite. My eyes were not expressive, because if I opened myself up too much, what might happen? Yeah. Fear, fear, fear. In the Bible, perfect love casts out all fear. That is, that's really something to just paste on the wall. It was actually one of the... That was, I learned it from Vivekananda. I didn't know it was from the Bible. When I, The first book of Vivekananda I read, that was one of the th- two or three. Don't think about yourself and be happy. That was novel. Don't think about yourself and you will be happy. Love casts out all fear. And... Today is the result of what you did yesterday and tomorrow is the result of what you do today. Those are the three things Vivekananda taught me in June of 1966. And it put me on the spiritual path. Yeah, it's worth remembering. All right, that's it for tonight. End of story. So we did, we did 302. Thank you. We did 302 and half of 303.